Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So good evening and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And tonight in this series of interviews I've been doing with uh, people for the last, um, well, three or four months really, uh, people who are very much involved in the arts, either producing it or making it, making it on their own or with other people. I've got um, with me tonight Andy Craven Griffiths, the writer, educator and performer. Hello, Andy. Hello. Really nice to have you. Um, on love the words, I've, you've obviously done masses of stuff at the chapel before. Do you have um, do you have pleasant memories of that? I do, yeah. Um, of of performing myself and also of of running poetry slams in East Leeds schools, uh, and it's always the the most exciting bit is seeing people's finished work and getting to share it with an audience. So first of all, Andy, how's this um, this strange period of time from March been for you? Hmm. Um, up and down. I've, I've found that it's exaggerated both the good and the bad. Um, on the one hand, it's given me time to work on my PhD, which has been uh, very pleasing for my PhD supervisor. Um, on the other hand, it's meant not being able to work in schools, which is you know the bulk of my work usually, of my income usually. And recently in particular, I've been um, missing that a lot. And obviously being cut off from from people a lot more a lot more um isolation is not great but that's meant doing lots of self-care things to try and uh, counteract that um but there are other positives as well i think the slowdown of having to um be more considered and not as caught up in the the tidal wave and the rush of modern life is a good a good prompt to to make me um rethink how fast I'm trying to do everything and, and actually being more selective about just doing the things I want to do. Um, I, I, yeah, so that's hmm. the good and the bad. Do you think that thinking that you've done about taking things slower will hold in a, a kind of post-COVID world? Are you hopeful? Yeah, I think it, it will. Um, you know, I've, I've never been that interested in... in um, racing to get status or money that's like I want enough to be able to survive and not be scared or worried every month uh, about where money's coming from but beyond that I'm much more interested in um, you know the things that that can be done slower that don't take a lot of money that you don't have to compete for um, arts things for instance human contact for another and I think they'll stay because I'm building habits in uh, that i that if they become daily habits at the minute, they're they're getting there. 
then they should last, you know, once all of this changes and, and uh, we can spend more time in person again. Absolutely. Can we ask what the PhD uh, is on? Yeah, playwriting. Um, playwriting and, and in particular how to write a play as a first-time playwright and in particular, particular, how to write a play as a first-time playwright who's coming to it from poetry and also from music, songwriting. Uh, so the pitfalls that the mindset of poetry and, and methods and techniques of poetry and, and songwriting bring and the new things that you have to change and learn in order to write a play. Well, what have you done, the PhD? Let me know how it went and what you learned. Yeah, well, it's, it's close. It should be finished by the end of the year, I think. Sounds um, fascinating. And, and I have an interest in that, so I'd be really uh, yeah, fascinated to read your PhD. Um, so, Andy, in normal times, um, when we aren't in lockdown or under in a pandemic what as a kind of what does your a kind of normal week if there is such a thing hold for you what's the variety of stuff that you do would you say uh there definitely isn't a normal week um that's part of the the <laughs> excitement of of the kind of life i lead i guess but also um part of the stress <laughs> you know you can't just get up in the morning and know what you're going to be doing um, I'll have to I have to plan a few days ahead and make sure I'm in the right place and so on. But within a month, there will be um, a bunch of teaching, teaching creative writing workshops. That's everything from five year olds up until uh, adult, uh, but mainly in schools. Mainly teaching performance poetry, um, but also teaching other things like story writing and and so on. Um, there will be some creative writing of my own. That might be poetry. Uh, for the last couple of years, it's mainly been plays uh, and drama. Uh, in the past, there's been lots of music writing as well. Um, so there'll be some creative writing. There'll be a lot of teaching. Um, and a bit of, for the last few years, a bit of study and working on the PhD. Uh, you know, once I get all of that stuff done, then there's... There's a lot of climbing. I do a lot of uh, bouldering for, for fun, hmm. seeing friends. Developed a running habit since lockdown. That's one of the, the uh, coping mechanisms, I think. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's always a different mix of of where and how much of each thing. And occasionally, um, you know, I'll be elsewhere in the country or, or abroad teaching or performing or writing, uh, working on a, a writing project. And uh, you've talked about sort of um, migrating into playwriting from mm. poetry. Was 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 is poetry and song or music your was it your always your starting point? Is that where you began? Yeah, I mean, in in terms of making things, uh, I didn't start in writing. I started um, more in visual art. Um, you know, did art A level and, and thought I was going to go to to art school. So in terms of where I started, it, it wasn't actually in writing. I started in, in visual art, um, thought I was going to go to art school, did art A level, loved painting, loved drawing, loved um, all of that side of creating things. And I kind of stumbled into writing through my older brother, um, stage named John Berkovich, who is a poet, rapper, um, theatre maker, uh, amongst other things and he was just wandering around the house rapping to himself 
um, or thought rapping, and I said, "What's what are you doing? What's that?" And he said, oh, "I'm practicing a, a performance poem, a spoken word piece." So I listened, and I thought, "Well, that's that's pretty cool." And he said, "Why don't you have a go?" So I went upstairs, started writing on a bit of paper, and about six sheets of paper later, I found I was still writing things, still had had things to say that I didn't necessarily know that I wanted or needed to say, um, and so I kind of transferred from the visual arts into uh, literature when I found that it was a better tool for uh, expressing and communicating things with more accuracy uh, and I liked the, the the depth and nuance and the control that gave me mm. um, and then from there it it started as spoken word poetry grew into music grew into page poetry uh, and then there was a bit of a leap yeah maybe five years ago into drama be great to hear some of your poetry. Have you got some? Uh, you can read, obviously, read something recent or read something from a while back. But it'd be uh, great to hear some of your own uh, writing, Andy. Sure, I'll read. Um, I'll do a spoken word piece, which is a, a sort of calling card and and an old piece, um, and then a a page piece from from more recently, if that's okay. Great. So the spoken word piece is called Grandad, and it's about my granddad who had Alzheimer's. It was written after a moment where he turned to me, didn't really know who I was anymore, um, but seemed to have a moment of clarity and said, do you know what it's all about? But by the time I tried to answer him, he'd forgotten he'd asked the question and forgotten who I was. So I didn't get to answer him, so I wrote this poem instead. Since we were kids, you threw us fruit from the tree of your memory folding navy stories in red leaves and paper aeroplaning them down to us. And even though we'd heard them all before, they still astounded us. Like the day you turned 21, mind-sweeping off of Borneo, hot on some birthday tots of rum, you jumped overboard, you said, I'm off, I'm getting out of here, and swum towards the shore. And we used to crowd round to request songs on the harmonica that you said you'd learnt by listening to Larry Adler. You played Upside Down, Jimi Hendrix of mouth organs, blasting Barbar Black Sheep out while we all sung the chorus. When I was six, we played cards, sat beneath that apple tree, and yours was the king of hearts, but you forgot, and it wrecked my magic trick. You taught me that boxing was more like fencing than fighting, flicking your nose with your right as your left went like lightning, and you pointed out Keys Club where you first learnt. You said that German champion hit you in the arms so you didn't get hurt, because boxers were rationed too in the war, so any opponent he got was great to fight, and he said you didn't just fight, you could box. Back then... It was a gradual slowing, actually knowing what was going on, but unable to turn it back. He'd say, I've a problem with my memory, see, but I hope it's a thing of the past. He'd point at me and say, I've seen you before. And we'd both laugh. Until I realised, somehow, you'd forgotten my name. And I hoped that somehow you'd remember it in a couple of days, because you knew everyone from somewhere, but you always played it safe. I wasn't Andy, just a grandson who you told again and again about the pianist you learnt swear words from as a kid, until I'm telling you the stories, magically guessing bits. But you never told me, and I never asked you why you spoke to passers-by as family as new family passed you by. Who's Shyla? you'd say. You see, it works from the back, eats away the recent first and swallows your youth last. She's Tanya's daughter, Grandad. Oh, I know Tan and Raph. And they're next to be forgotten. Still, got a laugh. Like at how you accidentally stole that bar of chocolate that you pocketed before walking off without even knowing you'd forgotten it. Or at how you ate Ginger's cat biscuits. Got a laugh. 
hearing us say they were gingers, but forgetting that he was a cat. Or how, even the other night, Nan said, you turned to her in bed and asked who she was, where she lived, and even where she slept. Now you drawl, like there's so little left of your memory, it's taking the words from your tongue instead, as though your lips have forgotten all the shapes in your head. But then you get profound. Do you know what it's all about? I'm shocked. Pardon? What? And you miss what you just said. Or rather, you don't miss it. Today, you can't remember the rules of chess, or what it's called. Can't use a knife and fork or undress and think that life is your primary school. But if I sing, or just smile, you cry whilst you laugh. And then, you feel something beyond memory or words, in that small instant, however long it lasts. And maybe, that something's what it's all about, Grandad. Lovely. Thanks very much, Andy. I was Andy Craven Griffiths, uh, granddad. And uh, Andy, it'd be great to hear some more of your writing a bit later on. Sure. If that's okay. So, um, obviously, you say you've gone into playwriting. How, how, how has that been for you? And, and what's what, what? give us an example of, of what you're writing or you've written recently in the way mm, Um It's been massively enjoyable because it's a, it's a bigger scope to work with. So you can, you know, you can build worlds and, and characters. And um, the easiest way I, th I think about the difference is um, playwriting is about human psychology. What do humans do in certain circumstances and why? Um, and you, you're working over a period of time, seeing how people change. Um, in a poem or a song, uh, it's not strictly separate. To the, to the way you do poetry, there's narrative as well. But on the whole, for me, it's more about elevating a moment and um, generating close attention to, to something smaller than that. Um, what I'm writing about at the minute, I've uh, my debut play, Joygonaut, is about kindness, and in particular, how kindness might work as a cure against toxic masculinity and a lot of the negative effects of toxic masculinity um, by which you know I mean men being encouraged not to share feelings um, boys don't cry boys will be boys as in perm permitting violence and anger and aggression uh, the obsession with winning beating everyone else all of those sorts of things um, that started touring before COVID got shut down halfway through COVID, and we'll we'll go again next spring, um, two thousand twenty-one. It will be um, touring again, and my PhD play is a mortality play, um, which is really about uh, my personal experience of how I've learnt to feel excited and positive about the world, despite the fact I'm atheist. <laughs> And we're starting from a place of, you know, it's very easy um, for your belief system that, that this is everything there is to, to make you feel um, depressed or weighed down by it. Uh, but if you look at it this diff different way, it becomes um, a gift and exciting and something to be grateful for. Uh, so, yeah, they're the, the, there's other ones on the way, but I'll talk about those once they're written. Fascinating. And who is touring the, the one that's COVID temporarily closed down? Uh, myself, I'm, I am performing in it. So um, I started writing the PhD play first 
and learnt whilst working with a director and, and producer that uh, when you are completely unknown and you're new to, to the art form, it's going to be very difficult to sell enough seats to have a play with four actors in um, and expensive production values. So I wrote Joygonaut, which was an idea I already had and wanted to do uh, just for myself as a one-person show, because then it's really cheap to tour. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Good move. Well, um, we're talking to Andy Craven Griffiths, a writer and performer and educator. Andy, um, you've got a piece of music uh, to introduce to us. What is it? Uh, it's a piece called Organs uh, by The Uncluded. The Uncluded is the rapper Aesop Rock and uh, singer-songwriter Kimia Dawson. Um, I've chosen it because Aesop Rock, as a rapper, has had a big influence on on how I write in terms of density of rhyme and rhythm, density of rhyme schemes and rhythm. Um, but I've also chosen it because it's a sentiment I like. It's, a, it's the only song I know about organ donation and that we should donate our organs. Um, and I like stuff that deals with things that aren't obvious in that art form. It's important to give away your pieces in the details surrounding your death. There will always be a need for the pieces you are made of. You may one day need a few pieces yourself. Jen stood at the finish line and waited for Dylan to cross. Then she Alarms of your idolatries, the object will be turning goodbyes into good biology. There will be a DOA who has supports that seem okay. Coinciding with someone you know that needs a piece replaced, and we will stand around the corpse, fishing in a well of ribs, treasure hunting just before they show you what the devil is. Nobody is judging you to vilify the guilty. I will cut and dry, be leaving with your kidney. It's important to give away your pieces in the details It's important 
So that was Organs by The Uncluded, chosen by Andy Craven Griffiths. So, Andy, you've done a great deal of work in schools and um, you're well known for it and very well regarded for it. And you, I think you have a very positive effect on young people uh, from, from everything I, I see and hear. But were you, did you have any mentors as a young person who were particularly influential upon you? Um, like when I was in school? Yeah, or really on your writing or on you personally? Um, yeah, more on my, more on my writing, uh, in terms of my elder brother, really, it was, it was, it was maybe less of a mentor, more of a, an inspiration, seeing someone close by do that made it seem like something that I could do, um, so that was very helpful, um, at school I wasn't particularly into poetry or writing or anything like that, I wanted, just wanted to play football, really, um, and you know ride my bike and occasionally play computer games or whatever else but I wasn't interested in sitting down and and reading um until seeing people write about things that weren't so distant I think I think that's partly what it was with my brother that he was writing about things that I I could relate to and and recognize um so yeah that's that's kind of a big part of what I, what I try to pass on to to young people is that they are worth writing about, that everyone's experience needs representing and and it's a great way to get excited about writing is to see yourself in it. Because that is quite an interesting one that it interests me that you saw and heard your brother doing that and that gave you a sense that it could be done, somebody close to you was mm. doing it and I suppose for, for many of the young people you work with they may not have that kind of role model. They may not feel that kind of sense of not entitlement exactly, but but potential possibility. Yeah. Are you are you work? You presumably you just have to work with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's you know it was the same for me. There's in my school, it wasn't expected that people would become writers or artists or you know things like that. Um, and I think in in a lot of schools. Um, you know, particularly with changes in the curriculum and the minimising of, of, of the arts uh, and the lack of social sciences in, in comprehensive secondary schools or primary schools and so on, you know, kids are, are funnelled more and more towards just do what's a reliable job to, to get the money to to pay the rent and buy the food. And that's all that's all very well, but if you get good enough at anything, you can get paid for it. Um, but I do think I do believe that's a huge part of it is seeing seeing people from where you're from do it as well, um, understanding that a lot of those barriers are are in your head, um, and I've I, you know I've got I I still battle those barriers of feeling like like I'm worth uh, the, the things I I write are worth reading or worth hearing and and so on. When I wrote that granddad poem. I thought, well, why would anyone want to know about my granddad? It's I don't care about my granddad. And and what I discovered through it was, by writing honestly about yourself, you can't help but end up writing about loads of other people who will connect with it. Because it got the, such a good response once I performed it live, it really um, surprised me. But it's true of anyone. If you write honestly about the things that are interesting to you and exciting to you and sometimes scary to you to write about, 
you are writing about lots and lots of other people that you've never met because none of us is that unique or that um, bizarre that our own experience is, is unique, you know? Everyone's having similar experiences to someone else. And when you first started working in schools, did you um, have an immediate sense that this was something you really were going to care about and become very skilled at? Or was it just something, yeah, what just, just happened? How was it for you then? Honestly, the first couple of times were terrifying. <laughs> um, the first couple of times I taught in schools, I was I was shadowing uh, a good friend of mine, Dreadlock Alien. Um, to and it's to Dreadlock that I that I owe a lot of what I learned early on about working in schools. Um, but after the initial couple of times where all of my mental energy was in um, remembering what I needed to do, what I was trying to teach. Uh, try not to forget anything and just feeling quite stressed and pressured but then very quickly I got used to uh, all of the things I was trying to impart and learnt much more about um, the importance of the interaction you know not not underestimating kids not talking to them as though they're pets you know some people struggle to talk to kids because they don't necessarily think of them as being little humans you know they're still very complete people um and yeah I, I once i got to that stage i started to really enjoy it uh, and get a lot from trying to get young people excited and there's there's it's such a huge thrill when you see someone get something whether it's a particular poetic technique that they can then use like simile or metaphor or rhyme or rhythm and then they start using it joyously to say something they want to say or if it's just f suddenly feeling permission to be able to do this to be able to to write a poem um and so yeah the most the most gratifying moments for me are when are when that moment happens in a session or sometimes i get an email after a session from a parent saying you know my my child's come home and been writing poems all evening that's a massive buzz um you know i've missed that over the last six months really and do you still get nervous when you go into schools, or is it now second nature? It's now second nature. I'm, I'm, how many years in? Thirteen years in to teaching workshops in schools. So now, yeah, it, it took a few years for the the nerves to go, but now I just, I'm just excited. Um, I've done it enough times to know that from all the different things that can go wrong, I've dealt with them all in the past. I'm very well prepared, and and now it's just really enjoyable engaging with young people. One thing that you mentioned, you talked about working with boys. Well, you talked about, you mm. talked about toxic masculinity. Often boys are, well, if I ever go into schools and given a group of reluctant readers, it's often the guys. Is that, do you think there is an inherent problem with that? Is it about conditioning, about the way they conceive of themselves and how do you work with that i think it's about conditioning um you know all of the all of the reading i did around jorgen when i was writing the play um shows that the psychological um studies as well as as more anecdotal stuff and personally i was you know i was i was lucky in the sense of i grew up uh with my mum being a breadwinner, 
and my dad, my house husband. Um, so I, I, even with that sort of advantage, um, I still discovered and still, you know, carry with me lots of bits of toxic masculinity. Don't want to cry at a film that, that makes me cry if there's other people around who might see me cry uh, and, and actively fight that. So and and it is conditioned in us from very young. I'm sure most people can remember instances of it, including things like in school, teachers saying, "Right, I need two strong boys to move this table to year threes." At which point, you know, there's no discernible difference between the strength of a girl or a boy. But it's constantly that that socialisation of telling boys they're strong, and telling boys they're clever, and telling girls they're pretty. And telling girls they're cute and I think there's a huge amount of damage done that needs undoing when I work with boys in school I don't necessarily treat them that differently but I do sometimes uh, question them uh, if they say something that I think I can see has come from that conditioning um, I've done projects specifically about emotional literacy uh, which have have worked really well in primary schools. Um, so yeah, I hope you know. I'm I'm not sure what the what the answer is to how to deal with that when it's quite advanced. <laughs> you know, in mm. secondary schools when boys really don't really don't want to talk about feelings and things like that. Um, mm. But yeah, I hope that that things like uh, poetry and a, and a legitimate vehicle for emotion. Um, can can give permission to to open in those doors and you think that actually confidence with language and being able to use language being able to use words does that obviously because obviously not all the young people maybe not not many of them are going to go on to become writers or to use writing for a living but do you feel that that sort of uh, increased um daringness if you like with language does it help in, in in life i mean that's a very open and big question <laughs> rather oh yeah enormously enormously you know if you've if you've got the tools to express yourself um more accurately there's less space for you to be misunderstood and all the frustrations that that go with that uh, there's less space for you to misunderstand other people uh, and the frustrations and and um all the problems that can go with that. I think regardless of whether you want to become a writer or not, um, improved language skills will, will give you a better chance of of dealing with other people, but also dealing with yourself. You know, most of my writing is stuff, most of the, the, the words that I put down on paper are things that I will never share with anyone because it's from journaling every day and, and writing down ideas and thoughts in order to work out what I think about something and what I feel about something and and so the language skills help me to understand myself better and that makes me calmer more self-confident you know lots of different positive things that's available to anyone um, and it's going to you know be improved with improved language skills great well we're going to hear another piece of writing from you in a minute Andy if that's okay but before we do um, you've mentioned about um, arts, the arts in schools, and uh, and the value of of doing this kind of work. Obviously, just it just comes right through what you're saying. But are you worried about the future in terms of of the kind of work that artists do in schools? 
Um, I'm not worried about the artists and I'm not worried about schools wanting it and valuing it. I'm not worried about those people's response to it. Uh, um, the thing I'm worried about is the government squeezing it more and more, um, tightening budgets, getting more and more heavily on just, um, you know, the, the, the core subjects of science, maths and English, which obviously are vitally important but then to the detriment of everything else. And so I think it's, it's, that's where the key lies. If, if the government put more arts in the national curriculum, if they gave more money to it, we'd have a population of happier children um, because so much human joy comes from that. You know, Whether it's doing and making art or consuming it, within which I include all of the music that everyone listens to every day. Uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all of that that's all made by artists and if we're not creating them then we're gradually strangling at least the quality of the art that's being made uh, all over the place and possibly the amount as well um, so yeah that's a fairly long answer to say not worried about schools or teachers worried about the government a little bit absolutely and I'm really interested in uh, and, and cheered by you reclaiming the word joy uh, you've, mm. you know, in your name of your play, you've talked, you've mentioned it several times. Actually, it's a great word, which which you know people don't use so much. Those think also, and well, but we know what it means. But we, we and when we have it, when we feel it, we mm. know it, don't we? Yeah. So yeah. And it's something that's that's clearly valuable in itself. It's not there in order to get money or in order to be popular. It's a thing that is a you know yeah. purposeful in and of itself and for me that's at the center of why we make art read us something else before we have to leave you sure uh so this is a, a page poem um called centrifuge imagine fledging from the ground up little legs sprinting circuits around a big sister ballasted center she'd lean back and you'd stumble upwards shins strimming a crop circle in the long grass and as she'd never let go so you wouldn't think of being flung out and chin ploughing clumps from the lawn you'd look along the parallel lines of your linked arms find her face in focus the trees streaking sideways a sky so distant you'd take it for stable she'd throw back her head and watch the blue spin its clouds like bath foam leaking out of existence your feet heavied with blood, you'd presume a safe landing, would never conceive of a day when her face would blur too, and you'd need a photo to re-anchor her, a day when you'd look up and see only sky. Great stuff. And just briefly, um, you, you, you make quite a distinction between the spoken word and page word, mm. as it were. What, 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 what are those distinctions about for you? So for me, it's, there isn't a hard, fast distinction, and I think poetry can be um, you know, written for performance and work well on the page and vice versa. But in whatever I'm making, part of the question about how to make it, what format to make it in, you know, is, this, is this idea a poem or a song or a play? And if it's a poem, is it a page poem or a, um, or a spoken word poem? For me, it's about using the format using the form in order to um, accentuate, bring to life the content of what you're saying. So mainly if I'm writing for spoken word or performance, it's a, 
an art form that's designed to be heard. Therefore, I'm trying to include things with um, that are sonically pleasing, like rhythm and rhyme, um, which you won't necessarily hear as much and you can't control the sound of on the page. In, in the other direction, on the page you can use line breaks so that you stop a line at a point that you want to use that line as a unit of sense in itself. It might be half of a sentence, but as half of a sentence, it might have a different meaning as well. Um, and, you know, the same with, with plays. You can use dramatic irony in a way that you can't in other formats. So for me, it's, it's just about trying to use the format so that the piece needed to be made in that format. You know, and figuring out which one's best for it according to the the content and the the point you're making, or what's going to go into the piece. So, in terms of your page poetry, can we find it anywhere or online or on a page? Uh, um, no, it's a short answer. <laughs> page, I've I've a few page poems in in poetry journals, but um, nothing yet published. I'm I'm working away a little on on some stuff. So there will be one day, but that's not uh, that's not the immediate thing for now. Good luck with that. Spoken word stuff you can find on, on YouTube, a few things. Um, yeah, page poetry, uh, I've, so far, is mainly on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> right, and we look forward to seeing those plays touring when we come out of all this. Um, so, final thing, um, another piece of music, Andy, before we go. Yeah, so this, this piece I've chosen uh, it is a piece of music that I only um, learnt of or, or may, may have heard before in films and things, but only made an effort to listen to last year. And I've chosen it because it's one of those pieces that, for me, it reminds me of that permission thing. You know, I never would have listened to opera in the past, never would have given it a chance, because I would have thought, well, that's for posh people, it's not for me. Um, and then gradually over the years, I've expanded the things I listen to, given myself permission. And this is this was a piece that, a piece of opera music that I love that made made me feel a lot, and frankly, I think everyone should give themselves permission to listen to, watch, and enjoy whatever they want to, and not to block it off because it's a particular kind of film or it's a particular kind of music, and so on. Um, everything is there now available on the internet for everyone. Whatever you like, that's fine. Is is I guess why I chose this piece. It's called O Mio Babino Caro and it's by Giacomo Puccini. Thanks for talking to us, Andy. Thanks for having me.
love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. You're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM. Thank you so much to Andy Craven Griffiths for that interview. In a minute, we've got Jimmy Andrex with another reflection on the 1970s, Baggy Trousers. And after that, another new track from the forthcoming album The Moon in the Clouds by Alex Rushworth. And the track is called The Moon in the Clouds. You're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM. Tune in every Tuesday evening, 5.30pm. Next week, I hope to be broadcasting an instrumental track from uh, Alex Rushforth's new album, uh, which I'm going to invite writers, listeners to respond to in words. What does that, that sound world, that atmosphere that Alex has created suggest to you in words? That's next week on Love the Words. Ting-a-ling-a-ling. The intro lasts six seconds. A slightly sinister chromatic rum followed by a bouncy bass. The sound of kids spilling onto corridors. Naughty boys in nasty schools. Headmasters breaking all the rules. My teacher, for the first two years at middle school, were a right twat. He used to twang all the kids with a big rubber band on their bare legs on the way out to P.E. The game scene from Kez, though filled with documentary realism, were nothing compared to ours. He had us playing rugby union, but didn't tell us the rules. When someone got tackled, everybody just piled on. Being on the bottom meant a period of terrifying suffocation, while one kid just ran round the outside of this oxygen-starved near-death experience, randomly kicking people in the head all under the supervision of a man who later became the local authority's top primary head. Even worse, he had what my dad dismissed as a stick-on-tash. Having fun and playing pool, smashing up the woodwork tools. The 1970s, as well as being the moment when economic inequality hit a historic low, was also a time when many things were gleefully out of control. I loved it. It didn't matter what your interest was, you could follow it up and nobody gave a monkeys. I wanted to do languages at all level, mainly because it was easy and involved the promise of travel somewhere more interesting than Kelthorpe. Problem was, you weren't allowed to do more than one language. For a balanced education, we were told everybody had to do a craft. For me, it came down to Spanish or woodwork. The letter said it had to be woodwork. My form tutor said it had to be woodwork. Me head of year said it had to be woodwork. I enlisted my dad, who always took me and my sister's advice on educational matters. In conversation with my head of year at parents' evening, his arguments were concise and compelling. Listen, you. I've been at building trade 30 years and I can tell you, your woodwork teacher knows nout. 
My lad's not freezing to death on building sites like I've had to. He's off to university, and he doesn't need that clueless hunchback who knows less than me, right? He then turned to me. What is it you want to do? Er, uh, Spanish. See, he's doing Spanish. And that was that. His arguments were lent weight by his bulk and his track record of dealing with differences of opinion using the tried and tested method of threatening people. All the teachers in the pub passing round the ready rub trying not to think of when the lunchtime bell would ring again. It's incredible to recall a time when, if you wanted to see a teacher at break time, you could barely see the other side of the staff room for fag smoke. My Spanish teacher used to fill his pipe while he taught us verb endings, and the English teacher rolled his own while we leadenly tried to read Julius Caesar. Lunch times were an hour and a half, for which local pubs and chip shops were extremely grateful, as were the newsagents who did a brisk trade selling single fags to kids. In later life, when I was on the other side of the counter, I realised that sinking feeling in the gut was felt even more keenly by teachers than kids when the bell went. Madness frontman Suggs said he wrote the lyrics to Baggy Trousers in response to Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall with its Hey teacher, leave them kids alone refrain. Like me, he'd been at schools where, even as mayhem was instigated, he sort of felt sorry for the teachers. Oh, what fun we had, but it, did it really turn out bad? All I learned in school was how to bend or break the rules. This song's lyrics are a sketch of a lost world. There's little sentimentality or wishing things were like that now. This is just how it was. Let's face it, the same freedoms we exploited to the hilt were also abused by sadists and perverts right through the system. We were lucky it was just rubber bands, violent games and humiliation. We could have been at a public school being thrashed and sodomised into positions of authority. Didn't do me any harm, and so on. The headmaster's had enough today. All the kids have gone away. Gone to fight with next door's school. Every term, that is the rule. At our school, this termly melee was known as Beckett bashing. A rook on the 110 bus with a nearby Catholic school. I want interest in not being a fighter. And in any case, I didn't have money to waste traipsing into Wakefield for a sectarian scuffle. In Suggs's autobiography, he pays tribute to the diligence of Camden's youthful headcases, observing that even the kids who'd been expelled turned up, often wearing crash helmets and clutching bottles of cider. It was the only day I ever remember seeing a full contingent at school. God knows how, as half of them haven't been there for any of the other 364 days of the year. How did they even remember where it was? Never mind when the last day of term fell. No mobile phones, no Facebook. Hundreds of us all just turned up on instinct, like some great natural wonder. Salmon swimming up river to spawn. Birds migrating south in the winter, or whatever. As a teacher for 34 years in some vibrant locations, the end of term were planned for like D-Day. In one school, the ritual involved a choreographed sweep of the building with a human wall of staff, followed by a brisk tour of the surrounding area, walkie-talkies in hand, shooing the kids off for their holidays. Supporting us was a fleet of cop cars, 
who, to be honest, caused more trouble than they prevented, often skidding to a halt and leaping out to settle some score, whilst we, the staff, pleaded with them to deal with a mass brawl up the road. Still, compared to the grim and often embittered speeches of staff, I found it all rather vigorous fun. In more imaginative schools, the old nonsense was avoided by having a trip to Alton Towers on the last day. There were still brawls, but they all took place a long way away, and most kids didn't want to lose their place in the queue. All the small ones tell tall tales, walking home and squashing snails. This is one of my favourite lines. Marcel Proust took seven volumes to fully evoke a lost world, but these two lines conjured up an entire childhood in the tiniest of details. The walk home, which in my day was unaccompanied from the age of about six, could involve a bracing range of activities from collecting frog spawn or jumping across a beck to long conversations about nothing or simply being beaten up for no discernible reason. I remember one kid about three years older than me who used to terrify me because every time he saw me he'd chat for a bit and then get me in a sweaty headlock for about ten minutes. Forty years later... I realised that the ageing manager of our local Aldi was this same kid and that he probably did it because he'd run out of small talk. Or maybe he was wrestling with his sexual identity. Who knows? Freud wouldn't have had a clue either, but then again, it never came up our end. It's fun to look back, but you won't want to live it again. It was hard work, we had no money, and older people treated you like crap. Oh, what fun we had. Naughty boys in nasty schools Head masters breaking all the rules Having fun and playing pools Smashing up the woodwork tools All the teachers in the pub Passing men are ready rap Trying not to think of when that lunchtime bell will ring again Oh what fun we had Why did it really turn out bad All of the school was had to spend not break the rules Oh what fun we had But at that time it seems so bad Trying different ways To make a difference The Thank you. 
Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. Passing the fog or its dream. 
the shore.